regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to uh, a new episode of Datacast and today uh, I have the pleasure to speak with uh, Brian O'Neill. Brian O'Neill is a designer, advisor and founder of uh, Designing for Analytics, uh, which is an independent consultancy which helps companies turn analytics into indispensable decision support applications. For over 20 years, he has worked with companies including Dell EMC, Global Strategy Growth, TripAdvisor, Fidelity, JP Morgan Trace, eTrip, and several uh, SaaS startups. Uh, he has spoken internationally and giving talks at uh, O'Reilly Strata, Enterprise Data World, the International Institute for Analytics Symposium, Predictive Analytics World, and Boston College. Uh, he also hosts the highly rated podcast called Experiencing Data, where he reveals the strategy and activities that our product, data science, and uh, analytics leaders are using to t- deliver valuable experiences around data. Uh, and uh, in addition to consulting, uh, Brian is also a professional percussionist and has performed at Carnegie Hall and um, the Kennedy Center. Brian, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So yeah, the first thing that I, that I noticed that, uh, is that you have an educational background in, in music. And, you know, as I just briefly mentioned, you study percussion, study in college, and you also perform as a professional percussionist. So, yeah, you know, can you talk about your career as a musician? <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's probably a little bit uh, odd to have a percussionist on your on your show. So uh, to give some context that you're correct, I, my formal studies are in music, uh, specifically in percussion performance. So. Uh, this means I play drum sets and I work uh, in orchestral settings and I work in like Broadway musical theater type shows, etc. And then I run a couple groups as well. So uh, I do some touring with the groups that I lead. And then uh, I, I freelance uh, as a sideman uh, around the Boston area, at least prior to COVID-19, I did uh, that whole industry, the whole performing arts industry uh, is is about 96 percent shut down minus a few streaming things people can do online. Uh, but it's it's been a, a difficult period for a lot of artists, uh, performing artists right now. And, and the, the path out of this is still highly unknown. You know, we have to think about audiences being comfortable, not just the artists, but audiences and venues and, and, and the whole ecosystem around the arts is, is definitely going through a big change right now. So so that was that's one of my careers, and then I I, I run uh, designing for analytics, my uh, consulting firm, as I as you mentioned, uh, where I try to help you know product managers, uh, data science and analytics leaders learn how to apply a human centered design approach to building data products. So whether it's a custom analytics application or a SaaS product, or you're trying to implement uh, uh, an AI solution in, in a, inside a company, I kind of look at it bringing in. 
this design mentality, which is a little bit different than driving at things from a data and technology perspective. And so my goal is to is to help people on the data side with very good technical skills to understand that there's more to creating useful solutions for for human users, our, our customers or whoever those people are that are going to engage in the last mile. There's more to that than the, the statistics work, the math work, the analytics, standing up a data store, pipelines, all that, all that good technical stuff. There's more to it to ensuring that it, proper, it gets properly visualized and properly engaged with. And so we can talk more about that on the show. But yeah, those are, those are my two careers, <laughs> one of them active and the other not so active right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's definitely uh, interesting to, to kind of balance two, two different careers at the same time. Mm-hmm. It makes you more become a more interesting person, right? <laughs> I um, hope to try to be. <laughs> kind of talk about sort of your, your career as a designer. So before we're talking about, uh, you know, your consultancy, you started your career, you know, as a UX designer working for a variety of companies. So, you know, first of all, like what about the field of UX design that attracted you at, the, at first sight? So when I came out of school, at a music school, I had been doing what used to be called web design where, you know, you, you knew how to write a little bit of code, some HTML and CSS, and you worked in Photoshop and mostly building marketing websites and all that kind of thing. And when I uh, you know, moved to Boston, I kind of jumped into the startup scene. And this is when a lot of software was first being moved into the browser. I don't think I really thought about it conceptually at that level. And I wasn't always thinking about business. I was very focused on you know, the visual presentation and I liked writing the code. And I was, I was a pretty good... I was very technical for a designer. I, I didn't go to design school, so I was kind of self-taught on all these things and, and realized that I was kind of an out, I was different than a lot of the other designers that I would work with when I was still an employee. Uh, and so I, I, I realized for, for whatever reason, I had just, I had a good knack for the technology piece as well as the design, so I, I could implement my solutions fairly well and but I didn't have quite the same visual design chops as some of my more trained colleagues did um, so I mean what got me in I don't know what got me interested I think I just felt the satisfaction of being able to build to build things and it kind of tapped into a, I don't know childhood enjoyment of playing with Legos and being creative and coming up with solutions and tinkering and all, all this other stuff I was doing outside of music um, I realized you know, oh I could get a job doing this kind of stuff and eventually I, I started to really realize, you know, that the human centered design and user experience design we've gone through, there's lots of different names and it gets very confusing. But the point is we're really trying to make stuff people want to use and that they can use. And I really enjoyed that challenge of what, is, what goes into making something that someone will actually use and find valuable. And for me, that's that, that challenge is still really fun. Like I still enjoy, you know, when I'm working with a client or whatever, if I'm designing a solution with them and we get it in front of customers and it bombs when we do like a user test, when it bombs, but we find out all this really interesting stuff about why it didn't work, that still is like some of the most like exciting work for me. That That's something I get out of it because I'm lear- you're learning something about the human condition and about how people work. Why did this design not work? Oh, it's because I thought this this data meant that. And I thought when you said this, that it meant that. And I don't know how to get from A to B. You're learning all this stuff about how humans tick. And then you can take that knowledge and apply it forward to the next project that you do. 
And it, it's just kind of like it's really validating when you take this squishy kind of, you know, design operates in the gray area. And this is something I talk about in my course for data people on, on designing human-centered data products. You have to get comfortable working in this gray area. It's not analytical. It's, it's, it's qualitative. It's kind of mushy. There's a lot. There's no one right answer for things. Uh, but if you have that analytical side where you kind of like to know, like, what's the right answer? Well, you do get some some exposure to that in the design process, primarily through testing and validating the solutions with real people to understand, you know, their perspective. And I don't know, I find a lot of joy in just making stuff people want. And it's much more fun to make stuff people want and that they can use than than to just throw technology out. And then people are confused and like, what do I do with this data? I don't know about you, but like most of the software engineers I worked with, they hate writing code twice. They don't want to build it twice. They'd rather know like what should the design be up front so we don't have to redo this in three months. You know, it's it really comes back to that is is fulfilling people's needs and empathy. Absolutely, yeah. I think that mindset of uh, understanding user psychology is really important to you know whatever top um, type of products that we uh, do to sell to them, right? Like you know, as you mentioned, briefly after working as an employee for several years, you you start designing for analytics, the consultancy that you've been working on for a while. Well, first of all, you know, what is your motivation for kind of starting your own consultancy, and what could be your advice for you know people who are interested in in doing the same thing? You know, people who, who want to becoming a consultant, essentially. Sure. <laughs> There's a lot there. So my personal motivation there, by 2006, I was, I don't know, probably turning 30-ish, somewhere around there. And I was working at a startup, you know, 60 to 70 hours a week. And I was just burned out. Uh, the, the workload of being a W-2 employee, uh, having a full-time job, I was director of design. And I was trying, you know, at nighttime, I changed hats and I was playing gigs and trying to network and just join the the music community here in Boston. It was just too much. I, I didn't have enough gas to, to work both careers at a professional level. So so actually our, our startup, that startup eventually fizzled out. I was in the first round of layoffs and I was like, I had a client, uh, an old client that needed some work done. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to work on this project for a while and and just see if I can you know, have a go at it just being self-employed for a while. And that was 2006, you know, 14 years later, I'm still self-employed and, and really enjoying it. And in terms of, uh, you know, so, so basically for me, it's I'm running two careers and I have a family and all that. So I want to have time to do other things besides work. And I, and I didn't want to get paid for my time. So, so for, for people, you know, early stage career, uh, I think, I think really understanding the difference between Understanding if you're being paid for your time, which is a lot about how W-2 jobs work, you sign up for a salary and in exchange you give people primarily time and effort. You know, you may have a bonus structure, something where if you deliver a certain amount of value, you get compensated for that. But, but basically we're talking about trading time for money. I don't think time for money means is the right thing for me. I wanted to be paid for my insight and my knowledge, regardless of how much time it takes me to do the work. And I didn't want to trade time because I can't make time. We can we can make more money. We can always find more money, but we can't create time. And and so I wanted to I wanted to make sure I was in control of that. There's more risk with that, though, right? Because I think the difference is, you know, at the top of the really it starts at the top. The person who's probably up <laughs> up at night the most, worrying about what's next is the leader in your company. They're, they're the ones that have to think about what's happening tomorrow. 
how do I make sure that we're bringing in the revenue we need to pay all of my employees and to, and to keep us moving forward? It's a very different perspective. So let me, let me frame this for your data science people. No one is going to want to buy data science from you unless you're effectively doing W2 work or you're doing contract work where someone is dictating the projects and the work that needs to be done. And they're primarily hiring you to do execution work where they're going to guide the work. They're going to tell you what they need done. And then you're going to go and do it. Some people are totally fine with that and they love doing that. And it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to have to figure out what someone really wants. I don't want to have to, you know, go figure out what the problem is. Just give me the problem and then give me the data set and I'll go out and do it. That is totally fine if that's what you want to do. But if you're going to be a consultant, which means for me, this means you have a particular expertise in a, in a niche area and you want to help people solve specific problems, you're running a business and that's not the same. You, you can't spend all your time doing data science, you also need to spend your time sharing your knowledge, doing marketing, doing learning about sales, learning about your pipeline, all these other things that go into running a business. It's it's not really the same thing as contracting or being an employee. And that's not this is this is how it is like whether you're a musician or you're a data scientist or whatever, this is true of anybody that's running a small business, right? Like a chocolatier, you might make the world's best chocolate but I can guarantee you that chances are they're not spending 40 hours a week making chocolate. They're also thinking about how do I get customers? How much should I spend on advertising? Like, should I hire this you know, chef or this chef? Should I do this or why? Should I renew my lease for the next 10 years? There's all these other things you have to think about. And you know, the, the, the trade-off is though, you're in command. You can do whatever you want. You can change. You can uh, make changes faster than any company can do, right? If you're a consultant, you can say, you know what? I don't want to work on financial services products anymore. I'm tired of helping banks. I want to work on modeling for, you know, climate change. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? You can in a week. You can change your website. You can completely change your focus about what you want to do, and you don't need someone else's permission. You can try things. You can experiment quickly. There's a lot of benefits to being uh, small. Um, so it, it really depends on what's what's right. Um, I, I think there's probably some real value uh, if, if you're not sure and going and and getting a job to understand how business works. If you're if you're not really familiar with business concepts. Uh, it might be good for you to go into the business and and I would really think carefully about why are they paying me this salary? Like in the gravy train, it's still pretty good for for entry level data scientists. You're going to probably make six figures in the U.S. and you're going to have a you know probably your hand pick your jobs. But I can tell you this right now: there's a flood of people coming to the market, just like it happened with designers, and it will drive prices down, the cost of hiring will go down as there are more applicants. It's simply supply and demand. And eventually, people are going to want to hire good data scientists. And good is going to be based on, well, what kind of value have you produced? It's going to go beyond whether you code in Python or you code in R and you know this test and you pass that Kaggle competition. They're going to be looking for how do you, how can you provide value to our company with data science? That that what is the value you can help me uh, produce? So if you're early on, keep that in mind and think about why are they paying me this money? They must think that if they're paying me $200,000 a year, they're going to get more than $200,000 in value out of me. Well, how am I pro- 
how can I help produce that value for the company? And think bigger about your work. What pays your salary and what's data science's outcomes are actually being enabled through your expertise. Um, and, and then later on, you know, you, uh, you, and I'm not saying if you feel the, the, if you feel the, the, the need to go out and, and be self-employed right away and be an entrepreneur, I love you for it, go, go for it. But I think there's a lot you can still learn uh, about business if you haven't had much training in that by spending some time in an environment with people more senior than you, understand what you like about that environment, take in everything you can, and then maybe, you know, go go out into the wild on your own. And you might find out what happens a lot of times, right, is, is someone uncovers a, they uncover a problem maybe that they've seen over and over. Like maybe you're like, God, we spent so much time just standing up this pipeline or whatever, like, crap. Like if we only had a product that did X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't have to spend so much time cleaning data before I do my modeling. Like why doesn't someone just build something? Boom. Right there, there's that entrepreneur, right? You thought you were a data scientist and what you really realize is there's a huge opportunity to build a product, for example. And so you go out and, and you take that knowledge that you have from your employment work and you put it towards you know, starting a company or, or whatever it might be. Or, or maybe you've just seen the same problem over and over again as you've moved through your, your career. Like I do weather modeling and it's the same problem everywhere and everyone's doing this one thing wrong and I know how to fix that. I know how to prevent them from going down the wrong path and spending nine months building the wrong thing. Like, you know, let's let I'm going to go turn that into a business and, and, and put my expertise around that. So be small. Think about a small audience you're going to serve. If you're really going to go into consulting, you're not you're not there for everyone. The, the Internet is full of small tribes. And I, I recommend listening to Seth Godin's podcast and following his work. Uh, he's very big on on finding the minimum the minimum viable audience for your stuff, and starting to publish and share your knowledge with that crowd, and eventually you kind of you build this audience and you take them along for their ride, and eventually you can monetize that audience by by them by paying them paying you for your expertise. Uh, but don't try to be a data science consultant. That's meaningless. Be a data science consultant for companies, you know, one to 10,000 people who have, you know, social justice missions, or they are climate change activists, and they're working on, you know, whatever, like find a, a niche audience, a small audience, and, and really develop that expertise that that's what buyers are looking for is your expertise and competence. That, that's actually, when you look at why people hire experts, a recent um, study I just saw the number one reason people pay for expertise is actually competence. It's not even the quality of the work necessarily. It's not what's on your resume or the number of years you've done it. It's competence and that demonstrated expertise. That's what they're most worried about. So if you're trying to be everything to everyone, guess what? You're not really going to be an expert for anybody. So anyhow, I, I don't know how much you, how much you want to go into the business of being a consultant versus design, you know, these, you know, that's kind of all we could do a whole separate episode just on that. But I don't know if that's helpful to you. <laughs> Absolutely. And thanks for, you know, sharing, sharing that advice. I think, um, yeah, you, you hit on a lot of important points in terms of mm -hmm. uh, developing that, um, that, that business sense, right. Like understanding the, the, the outcome to draw technical work mm -hmm. and that notion of, uh, you really mentioned, um, minimum viable audience, which, um, I think another popular term for that, you know, is um, 1,000 true fans from Kevin Kelly. 
I yes. Think, you know, recently, there's a lot, with the rise of, uh, you know, the passion economy and, and you know, the, mm-hmm. pretty much everything, people was being able to kind of develop that niche audience and, and monetize that. So, yeah, very exciting right. time for a lot of, you know, talented and, and competent technical knowledge worker can develop their own, you know, way of, of uh, revenue uh, in country, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, just, just kind of going off from, from what you mentioned, you know, your, your clients in the past have included a variety of companies, you know, such as NetApp, Dispatch, Atopia, the OEMC, uh, among others. So yeah, uh, kind of going off of, of what you talk about uh, in, in the previous answer, like what are some of the common problems that these organizations need to have with? Sure. Well, of the companies you mentioned there, I, I, if there was a common thread, I would say, I would say that they're all dealing with rather technical domains and large volumes of information. And people, their customers are all trying to make decisions with this information, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? You know, on the, you know, in terms of like the NetApp and the Dell EMC, you know, my work in that space was largely in uh, performance analytics for storage systems. So if you're running a data center, uh, you know, you have to manage all the, the the resources, the virtual resources, as well as the hardware. And so there's a ton of telemetry flying around in the data center, right? You've got network and storage and compute and all these different things, and they're all inter- intertwined, et cetera. And so when things go wrong, you need t- software that can help you troubleshoot and, and diagnose why something went wrong and what you should do about it. That's still a challenge for a lot of those companies is to make the experience of that simple. And so the, the tendency, you know, at the, at these more engineering driven companies is to want to provide all the buttons and switches, provide all the data charts for everything, and just give all the information to the, to the users to make a decision on their own. Uh, there's a resistance to casting an opinion in the UX. So if you think about data as stating an opinion or drawing a conclusion, we can talk about my framework for that later on versus being extremely objective and saying, you put together, dear user, you go and find whatever, look up whatever charts and data you want and pull all the information and make your own decision about it. Well, that's in a business context, that's not what people buy the software to do, right? They bought the software to help them, for example, spend less time doing troubleshooting, right? Tell me what is wrong and what I should do about it. I don't want to go spend all of my day in here looking at charts and graphs and trying to understand what all these numbers mean. That is not what they're in there for. So the challenge there is is helping these companies, especially technical leaders, understand the human experience, the user experience people want to have. What is their actually problem? What, what does a day in the life of that customer look like? What are they worried about and how can this product or solution fit into what they're doing now? The, the goal isn't, you know, provide this GUI, provide this UX, and then hope they're going to use it. And you you build it in isolation and then throw it over the wall and then and then you expect them to change their behavior to use it. That model fails. It, it typically does not work and you, you end up with what I call a, it's technically right and effectively wrong solution. Right. So the data science and analytics work might be stellar. Your model might be 98% accurate. And guess what? No one cares and no one is going to use it because you chose to use a black box model because you thought accuracy was the most important thing. And the reality was accuracy was not. 
and I mean, I actually did a whole podcast episode on this with a consultant. And, and I think the title was something like, when is a 60% accurate model better than an 80% accurate model? And the point there was, you know, the 60% accurate solution that had model transparency in it, where people could go and actually understand why is it predicting this information? That was a, a much more valuable solution than the high accuracy model that was black box and no one could understand. So it doesn't mean black box models are always wrong because sometimes people don't care. Like a recommender system, you may not care. Why does Spotify think I'm going to like this song? I don't, I don't really care what went into that decision. So in that case, that might be fine. The point is, if you don't look at the user experience in the engagement as a success criteria or a quote acceptance criteria, as you might call it in agile or engineering speak, then you're probably going to fail because you have no idea whether or not any of the work you did matters to someone who's supposed to take it in and produce value with it. And a lot of times we, in analytics and data science, we're talking about decision support, right? We're talking about helping a human being make the next decision about a policy or, you know, right now we're talking about COVID-19. So the question is, you know, do all these charts and graphs help a governor or a regional policymaker make the next best informed decision that's possible? Well, ideally, we would inform those people in the process of creating the solution. And, and this is, you know, I know you were in the pre-roll or when our pre-conversation, you were asking about what is human-centered design in the context of this stuff? And the answer is, it means we're involving humans in the creation process. Early on, we're trying to learn about, we're trying to have very clear problem definition, not, not just technical problem definition, but the human's problem so that we can we can slide our solution in around the way they do their work today not as an afterthought not build 9 months spending you know spend 9 months on some you know predictive tool and it lets you do some hypothetical whatever and then they get it and they have no idea what all the numbers mean they don't they don't trust it they, they you know it's perhaps changing you know employment structures at a company because you're talking about like replacing entire departments and you did all this work in isolation by yourself without ever involving them. It's just a recipe for putting out another one of these, you know, 80 to 85% of projects that don't produce any value because the problem was not made clear. The users weren't involved at the right time and early enough, and it was built in isolation. So I know that <laughs> that's helpful, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You also put out a lot of articles in, in, uh, on, on your website, on, on your resource session. And uh, I, I just want to go over a couple of those interesting articles that I found. And, you know, maybe we, we can discuss a little bit. And, you know, for listeners who are interested in, in kind of digging a little bit more, they can have a chance to, to go read them. In a fun post called, Does your data product enable surgery or healing? Close to two years ago, you argue that data products design goes well beyond user interfaces and help define, you know, what's required to enable the desired user and business outcomes. So yeah, can you unpack this statement? Well, there's a little fun little story about this, right? I was backstage after playing a show with one of my Irish bands, and um, we were hanging out with the board and some of the staff uh, of the, on the presenter side. And uh, one of the board members self-identified as a surgeon, and so we were sitting there having you know dinner and drinks, and I was kind of asking him you know, what's it like doing his work? And he said, well, yeah, I'm a surgeon, but what I often end up doing is trying to convince families of my recommendations, especially when the solution is to not do any surgery and let the body heal naturally. 
because people go in and talk to the surgeon and they're kind of expecting they're going to get surgery and it's going to feel like you're doing something right to 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 heal the heal the child in this case i said oh so so really you're a healer <laughs> and he's like yeah that's that's true like effectively you're right i'm i'm more of a healer because if you separate healing which is the outcome from surgery which is a particular tactic that may or may not produce a healing outcome there's a tactic there and there's an outcome or a goal right mm -hmm. we can all go together which is this the healing and so the the point of this is that again your title might be data scientist or analytics practitioner or analyst or whatever it may be but in reality nobody really wants that right they want the outcome of what your work can provide for them right it's not the data science they want it's the outcomes from the data science it's a prediction to do x it's a recommendation to do y so that whatever the thing is we can make more money or we can reduce churn or we can predict you know prevent fraud or whatever it may be that's really what it's about and so i it, it's just a little analogy i kind of use to, to think of yourself as a as a healer instead of a surgeon and, and how would you apply that to your own work mm -hmm. so it's outcomes over outputs this is another thing i talk about on my my mailing list quite a bit is really trying to focus on what is the desired outcome for which our data output will enable, right? And we tend to focus a lot on producing outputs, models, spreadsheets, Tableau dashboards, software applications. Those are all the things, but the things are there so that some outcome can happen. And a lot of times when I work with clients, the desired outcomes have never been stated in a way that the full team can commonly understand what the goal is and so when you have that kind of situation where people cannot be very concrete and specific about what does a successful, good data product look like? What does it mean to be good in the context of this thing that we're making? If we don't know what that is, it's really hard to produce anything of value, right? And you're, you're more likely to get to the point where you know, you get at the end of the thing and people are like, what do I do with this thing? Or like, what are you talking about? And, and these kinds of reactions. And then you find out really what someone wanted. And, and, I'm, and maybe you've experienced this before. It's quite common. You People wait until they see something and then they start to talk about what it is that they really want. Oh, that's not what I meant. I really wanted this X, Y, and Z. So part of the design process is how do you get to that understanding early in the process instead of waiting until you build the wrong thing and then using the wrong thing to figure out what someone wants we can compress that cycle by learning how to use empathy and deeper uh, questioning and research uh, different types of qualitative research to involve customers in the process of figuring out what the problem is and what they need early enough that we can adjust to it hopefully it's usually a give and take right like and you might find out that like oh we went in thinking we're going to like, you know, pull out our machine learning hammer and hit this problem with it. But in reality, a simple dashboard or whatever might be just fine. 
And you have to be open to that as a data scientist that your, your tool may not be what you thought. It, it may not require AI or machine learning. Uh, you know, there might be possible in one month to just give someone a dashboard that actually really helps them with the problem. But if you go in there assuming I need to use X, Y, and Z toolkit or this new library or whatever, and you have this agenda to go use this technology, watch out because unless you've aligned that with what they really want and you and your whole team has an understanding of that, you're just more likely to put out something that's not going to hit the mark uh, for the customers. And then you're back to, it's like off to the next project and I don't know, life's short. I wanna work on stuff people will use and they care about and that's meaningful and makes meaningful change. And I'm sure your listeners do too. So we can shorten these cycles down, uh, but but the skill sets and the, and, and the toolkits for this are not Python. They're not statistics. They're not analytical. There's, there's psychology, there's creative thinking, there's design, there's all this other stuff that goes into kind of teasing this stuff out. Uh, and some places have this down, but a lot of places don't. The, this uh, human-centered design thinking within the context of the, the data world, the analytics world, and kind of the, the machine learning and data science world, I, I think this is still kind of a, a new way to think about things. So Yeah, for sure. And um... In talking about sort of adopting that design mindset, in another post called Designing MVPs for Data Products and Decision Support Tools, you share a couple of tactical tips for, you know, how to design an effective prototype for data products. So, you know, what are some of the main takeaways from, from this article? Yeah, so uh, those are all on my resources page. There's a lot to unpack there, uh, but I'll try to keep it short. So MVPs, first of all, you, you, a lot of your people have probably heard this term before, minimum viable product. I like to think of, uh, especially as we move into machine learning and, and, and AI solutions as data products, even when we're talking about deploying this stuff inside a, a non-software company, right? Like a whatever, like how would Disneyland leverage AI to improve you know, internal operations or whatever? you're effectively producing software data products that need to be managed and they have some type of value that they're supposed to produce. So we can apply the product mentality even if we're not selling these things, right? They're custom internal applications. So what does it mean to, to produce a minimum valuable product in that context? That's kind of what this article is about. And, and part of my point here is that, again, we don't need to, we don't need to spend nine months, you know, standing up a, an entire data, you know, all the data infrastructure and the pipelines and cleaning the data and doing all this testing, et cetera. That is not, uh, unless you're in a laboratory mode, which is we don't know what we want. We, we, we don't know what's in the data. We don't even know what the problem is yet. That's a different type of problem. And that's an okay thing to do if that's really what the task is. But if there is a project on the table, which is to deliver value, like reduce overhead, reduce labor, reduce something or improve some KPI, then that's not a lab kind of setting. So the question is, how, how do we build something small to help us learn quickly what will be the failure points in this thing that we're designing and building? What will make someone not use it? What will confuse them? Or better yet, what would delight them, right? What would make them engage with it? What kind of information do they need to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm a sales guy and I'm going to stop using this old thing I have and use this new thing you guys gave me because wow, this really like makes my job easier. 
So what I'm trying to do in this article is to talk about some ways that we can focus on the minimum part of <laughs> minimum viable product and prototype early. And a good example of this might be something like um, if you're working on a, a like a chat bot, for example, right? This is a popular one. Well, in the design world, we have a technique called Wizard of Oz testing. Uh, and so in Wizard of Oz testing, you can start to learn a lot about like, what are your, I, I imagine a lot of data scientists are probably wondering, what are the kinds of things people are going to type into this thing such, such that I know what types of responses and things to provide back to people in the, in the solution, right? We want to avoid giving wrong answers or kind of confusing, you know, answers to queries that come in. Well, what you can do is you can set up a, a prototype chat type experience and instead of putting a model on the back end, you have a human being that's responding to the queries that the test participant is putting into the system. And so you can have this dialogue with them and you can you can kind of have like a script, right? That keeps the human responding within some type of framework that would be constrained by what the data is likely to allow. But the point is you can start to learn about the types of questions and the inquiries that might come in and what that experience needs to look like to help inform the data science work that will then follow. Assuming that the feedback you get during that prototyping phase suggests that you even have a remote chance of delivering value. A lot of these chatbots actually don't. And that's that's not my particular area of expertise. I, I tend to work more on decision support, you know, more visual applications and things like this. Um, but a lot of them don't don't succeed. And I think part of it is they're not capable of answering a lot of the questions people actually want to answer. They, they do a very small subset of things. And if you ask the queries just right, then it's good at, you know, routing you to those limited set of uh, decision points. But um, so that's that's kind of the idea is oh, what does it mean to, to prototype? And, and we get into more like analytics applications, like levels of fidelity, right? Like sometimes you know, let's say you're building like a predictive model and you need to allow the customer, you find out that like, well, I need to run a simulation or scenario like, well, what if we increased sales to $1 million, then what would that do to the price per unit, whatever, right? You have all these different uh, variables uh, that might be part of this interface. You don't need to necessarily go and build out that entire thing to figure out what are the controls they need? Like, how is that interface going to work? Are, are there other data data points or sets that perhaps aren't even part of the model, but they're interesting information that would help someone actually take the prediction or the, you know, the tools recommendations and go in and, and actually implement those, that uh, advice, right? The opinion from the tool mm -hmm. and go and actually put it into production. You can learn that stuff without actually standing up all of the data science piece. And, and I imagine some of your listeners are probably like, oh, well, that's not my job. Okay, that's fair. First of all, design is a team sport. And secondly, what's important here is if you think it's not your job, raise, raise the concern that this stuff matters. If we don't wanna spend six months building the wrong thing, that somebody needs to make this a priority. And that, and guess what? A lot of people don't know how to do this unless you have people with human factors or user UX or design backgrounds. It's not a natural skill for a lot of data people, but start to talk about this as being important. Like, how do we know they're going to use this? What would we need to do right to ensure that someone will actually spend time using this calculator or whatever this thing is that you just made 
How will we know that we did a good job? Ask these questions. And that, that will invite some time, hopefully, to start doing th some things like prototyping and failing fast and, and focusing on learning quickly early on so that you, you don't spend time building the wrong thing. Thanks for kind of plummeting that with the concrete example of the tripod, as well as uh, emphasizing on that importance of taking ownership, right? Whether or not, you know, if you work on something, then you should really take ownership of the outcome uh, that they deliver to, to the end users, regardless of your titles that you mentioned. And um, yeah, so, so you, know, you uh, talked a little bit about sort of human-centered design uh, earlier uh, interview. So, I kind of want to circle back onto, onto that definition, right? In, in a possible why low engagement may not be the problem with your data products or analytics service, you, you talk about sort of the importance of using human-centered design to measure meaningful engagement in the context of data products. So if you don't mind, you know, uh, speaking it again for, for people who are not familiar with the term, what is sort of the, the definition of human-centered design and, you know, why, why is it relevant to data science? I think the key point there is that why did I write this article, right? So one of the things that I hear is a common challenge is that, you know, people don't understand our work. They don't understand the model. They don't get the data. They don't know what to do with it. They, the user stops using the solution that was provided to them, right? So what I wanted to get across in this article is that engagement as a measure of time, time spent using the thing, that's not necessarily the best measure, right? Like look at Google's focus on speed, right? The goal is not, we want to keep you on the search results page as fast as possible. That's not good. Like more time is not a positive measure of success, right? So my point is that engagement needs to be meaningful engagement, right? You need to understand what that means from the customer's perspective, right? So that we're not focusing on the tool, but we're focusing again on the human user there and what they're trying to do. There's a lot of different possible things, you know, it could be that they want to do, right? It could be reducing time to complete a task by having insight. It could be reducing the perceived amount of time, which is not the actual amount of time, that there's actually some differences there between what we think takes time and what the actual clock says, right? It could be, you know, providing uh, ammunition for someone to go make a purchasing decision, right? And to, and to go, go into a meeting and say, you know, my team came up with this analysis and yeah, we really want to buy carrot, you know, we want to buy a year's worth of carrots at nine cents a pop because, you know, we, we did this work and we have this evidence here to back it up. And really in this case, the, a, a successful thing is, did I enable my boss or my business sponsor to go into the meeting and get the purchase of carrots for her grocery store chain or whatever, you know, she's in charge of purchasing for the store. Did we enable her to go make a good purchasing decision and to justify that with some information? That's our, that's our successful outcome. And it may not have anything to do with how much time she spent, but simply on the quality of the application uh, and its ability to do that. Um, so yeah, that the, the article kind of goes through, uh, you know, different ways to think about what value looks like from the customer's perspective so that we can kind of, uh, one, one thing I, I kind of frame this as like, we talk about the last mile, right? I talk about the last mile, which is the data science, you know, if you're building a, a model, for example, there's a lot of phases there, right? And we sometimes use the word operationalize at the end. But to me, where the rubber hits the road is where if there's humans in the loop and you're not building a fully automated system that's never going to have another human being touch it, which is rare, 
at some point and at the end of this process, a human being's going to interface with something that you provided, a spreadsheet, a report, a tool, an application. You know, I focus mostly on when there's a piece of software that's going to be involved. But the point is that last mile, that is really what is going to dictate whether or not anything you did prior matters, right? It doesn't matter what all the inputs and the technical work that happened if that last mile you don't have the success that you're looking for. If they, if the target customer refuses to use it or they use it wrong, or they don't trust the information or they can't contextualize the information, all you did is you, it's like you had a rehearsal. That was not a concert, it was a rehearsal. It was a scrimmage, it was not a match. And you might've learned something, which is okay. Maybe the goal was like, we wanna learn if we can complete the machine learning cycle and test, you know, the test data, training data, you know, push something out, but how many times are we going to go through that rehearsal process and produce no value? At some point, yes, your team notes to know the mechanical part of the technical part of doing the machine learning lifecycle, for example, but that's not what the business really hired the team for, right? That That's you learning how to use these technologies, but that's not what anyone really wants. That's definitely not what a business sponsor or a leader or a CDO or a CAO wants to see long-term. Their job, and especially these, day, these days more and more so, the CDO and the CEO are expected to not be a cost center, but to provide value back to the business. We have all this data. How do we turn this into revenue or cost savings or a better customer experience or whatever it may be? These are, these are different things than just looking at yourself as we are order takers. Someone ordered a hamburger and fries with the side of you know a GAN and please give us a GAN and our fries and our hamburger and you throw it over the wall and on to the next order. That is not what the, that's not what the organ of the data team is for anymore. People are looking at them for insights. How will we disrupt the startup that's around the corner? How are we going to take all this information that we have and turn it into value? They need help doing that. And you can't talk statistics with these people and they don't wanna hear about the math that went into your model. They don't care about that kind of stuff. They need it related to their work. Whoever that sponsor is, whatever their day is like, whatever level of the business they're at, they're looking at it from their perspective. And design is about that ability to look at things with empathy, to try to wear someone else's hat, to think about it from their perspective, and then slide your solution in, design your solution and deliver it in a context that feels natural. Like we, we all know what that innovative software looks like. We've all felt it when you open an app or a solution and it just feels like it knows what to do. It knows the next step. It's just really well done. It's because a lot of times it understands you. It understands the context of use. It knows what your pain and problems and needs were. And it, it intuitively provides that answer because the designers or whoever, whether they have a design title or not, the people that made it spent some time. Maybe they got randomly lucky, right? But But you can instead of relying on luck, you can be deliberate in your choices. And that's what design is about is, is making deliberate choices instead of just like, well, that's just what Tableau generated when we put the chart on the page. That is not a deliberate choice, right? That's letting a tool decide what the design is for the customer. We want to be deliberate in these choices and, and try to really help with that engagement from a natural perspective, not to change the behavior of the customer, but to slide our thing into their existing way of working. That makes sense.
Yeah, I see. And um, talking about sort of deliberately tackling that last mile problem, you um, came up with this framework called CED, which stands for Conclusion, Evidence, and Data. Mm-hmm. And based on my understanding is that uh, this framework is intended to build customer trust, build customer engagement, and indispensability around the, the, uh, the analytics uh, solution. So yeah, would you mind um, unpacking the different phases of this framework? Sure. Yeah. So CED, as you said, conclusions, evidence, data. The main thing I want to get across here is that when we think about presenting a user interface or an experience, and when I say experience, it may mean that someone is using your information within the context of uh, a task or an activity that requires them to touch other applications and other services, right? It may it may not be just limited to the one thing that you worked on. So you have to think a little bit broader, right? It's not just about your dashboard, but what tool did they use before they came to your dashboard? And where would they go after they use their dashboard, right? So you're thinking about this UX. So from a when we take our overall project and or product, the thing we're working on, and we think about CED, we're talking about first the C, which stands for conclusion. So what I want to see happen more regularly with these systems is uh, these products that we're putting out is that there is the, the data and the, the tool or the application or the report or whatever your output is, it takes a stand about something. It provides a conclusion. Whether you write the conclusion in summarizing what you found in the data or whether you programmatically put that into the tool, this is typically what someone wants who's not an analyst, right? A a business sponsor or a customer or something. They don't want to spend their time analyzing the data typically. When we're talking, again, I'm thinking about decision support applications and analytical tools, which primarily are there to help us understand the past and inform the future, right? Decision-making. So let the data take a stand, design a conclusion in from the start. The second layer of the experience is what is the the evidence for that conclusion? The difference here is that what I see happen a lot more is that data people tend to want to provide the evidence first. And I don't know if that comes from a academic reason where it's like show your work and show all the stuff that went into your went into your work and you know nothing you can't predict the future perfectly so we're not going to take any stand because we don't want to be wrong etc cetera, etc cetera. that is not what most business and customers want they want to know what was the conclusion what should we do what did you find out okay now tell me what was the evidence you used to do that now provide the charts now provide if i want to go spend time looking at the detail give me some of that evidence and the third level would be just stands for data. And this is kind of more the raw inputs, the outputs. Like if someone really wants to understand, you know, what were the data sources that were used for all of this? I think of this like, you know, this could be like a, if you really want to export the C, you know, CSV of 200,000 customers and all the data, feel free. You can go look at the data we use to do this. Most people aren't going to, most customers probably aren't going to go into that. But I like to think of this as kind of a three-tier thing, almost like a you know like a pyramid or something like that, where we where we're really focusing on that conclusion piece first when possible, and then the evidence. And when we can't we can't always provide a conclusion because sometimes we're just reporting the facts, and it does the facts don't support any type of conclusion. Well, this is where design of the evidence part is really important. We need to design that evidence around the questions 
What, like think about, for example, what would be the questions that you would get if you were preparing a report, a readout to your, your sponsor, what are the questions they're gonna ask about this evidence? And we, as we've talked about already, guess what? We don't have to wait until you're writing the report and all your findings to understand what are the questions they're gonna ask. If, if I was an analyst, I would wanna go tease out that stuff way earlier in the process so that when they ask a question, it's already in the application or it's already in the report or the PowerPoint or whatever. We already anticipated all the questions because we asked them what the questions were early enough that we could actually then provide those kinds of conclusions. And I'm, I'm hearing this more too, the business sponsors, et cetera, and, and customers, again, thinking, thinking about people that are not working at software companies, but rather a customer might be an internal business sponsor. They wanna know what you think. They, they wanna know what conclusions you would draw. And it's not like, I think everybody understands, like we can't predict the, if everyone could predict the future perfectly, there would, every company would be a trillion dollar company. So there's, there's understood risk in everything. So I think if you're able to either verbally, if you're giving a, like an ad hoc report or within the interface of your application, if you're able to provide a level of trust and a level of quality design that someone can say, okay, I get what this is saying, like best case scenario, we're looking at you know, 30 to 72 is the range and the tool thinks 55 is the sweet spot. And it didn't just present those numbers. It actually gave me some kind of guide or a qualitative range. And how did it come up with 30, 50 and 72 as being meaningful numbers? Because the people that designed the solution went and talked to customers about what are the number? Like what, what does it mean to be 30? Well, anything below 33, I'm kind of that worries me. 55 is okay. And 72, that's like a home run for me, right? You can have interviews with customers when you start talking about these things. Like when you're working with an index, for example, from a zero to 100, you may be able to go figure out how a customer qualitatively thinks about those numbers, right? So that you don't ever just present 55 on a screen, 55 out of 100, there's no supporting information. There's no conclusion about it. It's just 55. And then you hope that this customer is going to know what to do with that. The better way is it's 55 as compared to what? Oh, it's as compared to the scale or as compared to the industry average or as compared to what we did last month or last quarter or whatever it is that they, what they think they need to compare that number to to make a decision. So conclusion first, then the evidence, the proof then the data on the bottom. And most people are never gonna dig into that stuff anyways. So that's kind of what the, the, the UX framework is for, for conclusions, evidence data for these analytics products. I see, yeah, there's uh, different layers that you need to unpack in order mm -hmm. to you know, get, get uh, meaningful engagement from the products, right? Mm -hmm. um, so my next question, my understanding is that, you know, traditionally, you know, when you view a software products uh, that included a trial, including software engineers, UX designers, and product manager, However, for sort of uh, analytic solution for sort of machine learning power products, then this team asks on the new role of the data scientist, right? So, you know, in your opinion, you know, what do you think is the best way to structure the, the interaction between these four distinct roles? Sure, you're right. I, I think uh, in the traditional software group, you're, you're spot on. I call like the, you know, the power trio, the, the design, product management, and engineering. In non-technical companies, those those roles are sometimes new. We hear about digital transformation. Some places are still just getting going 
with even having an internal product manager or having a designer working with analysts, you know, on these kinds of tools. So people are at different phases of these kinds of teams. I tend to think of the data scientist as being very helpful in helping us understand what's possible now with, with the information that's there. They can help contextualize the use cases. Like if, if we have part of the team is going out and talking to customers about they want what they want or what they need from some information, like for, you know, maybe you're trying to build a recommender system or whatever. I think the data scientists can be really helpful at, at setting expectations about what the limits of, especially when we're talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, what might be the limits of this thing and, and maybe helping us understand what are the boundaries of this thing? What are the types of trust issues that team may want to go out and deal with? They can provide that insight because they can they can see into the data in ways that I think the rest of the team cannot. On a practical level, I think if you're building you know a predictive analytics uh, type of solution, a, an advanced analytical solution, they would be integral to this this trio. In fact, early on, they may be even more important than having an engineer involved because you know you may not you may not have quite as complex of a uh, an, a software application such that you need an engineer involved early on as kind of the technical representative because you know for example you might have taken a very complex analytical tool and turned it into a one page a single page application that's basically you know it's all based on predictive stuff you don't need you don't go in and like look at 500 different parameters and study the data and then try to make a conclusion about, you know, who are our best sales leads right now in the CRM, right? You might be able to boil down what used to be a very complicated reporting tool into a single page application that that doesn't really have a lot of um, difficult software engineering challenges to it in terms of like the GUI and the back end and all this kind of stuff. The, the, the bigger challenges is going to be what does that interface need to be from a data perspective? What types of predictions does it need to make? What types of transparency needs to be involved? All this kind of stuff. To me, the data scientist is more integral to involve in the design process so they can understand early on. Like for example, the designer may go out and find out, you know what, the, the team is really excited about this, but they absolutely are not going to use this unless they understand, how did you know that I should call these 10 people I'm a sales guy, right? I go on the road, I make call, I spend my day on the phone calling customers, trying to keep them like churn. Let's talk about churn, right? I'm a SaaS product. Who's going to drop out? We don't want to lose customers, right? Let's get on the phone before they, they leave the, leave our business, right? Stop subscribing. How did you come up with these 10 people that I'm supposed to call? Like, I have a feeling for who I'm going to call. I go into the HubSpot and I, you know, fill out all these forms and like, last activity date was this last email contact was this, you know, lead score less than this. And I, you know, I have my recipe that I follow to determine who I'm going to call. Your thing is supposed to just tell me magically, like, here's your call list for today. How did you do that? What went into the, these people here and having the, the data scientists there to work with the team, including the salesperson to understand the trade-offs like, and the trade-offs may be, well, you know what, if, do you need to, do you care? Like how much information do you need to know about this person in order for you to call them? Like, would you believe it if we just told you the name? No, 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 I wouldn't believe it unless I could see, you know, X, Y, and Z, and I understood this other thing and blah, blah, blah. And, and so the data scientist may say, okay, 
Well, that's going to eliminate a couple tools from our kit. Like we're not going to be able to use, you know, a neural net here because I will, I can tell you it's going to be really accurate. I, I have a high, I have a very, I'm very confident we could, we could be highly accurate in telling you who to call, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to tell you why. So if you really need to know why you might be calling people that are totally happy and they aren't planning on leaving right now. So are you okay with that? Oh yeah, that's totally fine. I call people all day long and if they're happy, I'll just turn it into a customer outreach. Like we just wanted to check on you and see if you're happy. That's not a problem. Boom. Right there, the data scientist just got a useful requirement, which is okay, I'm going to use model X instead of model Y because they don't really care about how accurate it is. They just need something that's better than a random guess. And if it's 60% accurate, then they seem like they're going to be very happy. And now we can like move forward with that. We need a data scientist involved in these kinds of conversations, I think. And, and, and because they might also say like, yeah, we can do all that. And guess what? That also added six months to the project. We can stand up this neural net thing and train it on this whatever. And, you know, maybe that's only two months. So, but you, I know the black box thing is an issue. So are you, would you guys like to have a working solution sooner? Or would you rather have a really good solution later? And are you willing to take those trade-offs of, of transparency into the model, et cetera? Those, we gotta have our data science experts uh, involved in these conversations, right? And the product manager, product leader, they, they should be juggling all these different, ultimately making the decisions, right? But we need that expertise from the data science group when we're talking about these things. And again, it's a team sport. We, you, you shouldn't be doing this stuff in isolation you know, by yourself, like th there's a problem. If your customer has never seen the the work that you're doing until it's done, there's a big chance something is wrong. And, and th there's a high risk to the work that you're doing. So don't be afraid to get customers involved early to try to talk to them about what does it need to look like early on in the process so that they're not surprised. You want them to come out saying, like to me, a big success is that it's not like the Steve Jobs, you know, pull the black thing away and the new iPhone 13 or whatever. No, that is not the kind of design that needs to be happening right now with these data products. Instead, it should be like, okay, here it is. We just, we finally got this thing done. It's like, oh yeah, I saw, I saw last month's version. Oh yeah. And you added this feature. Oh yeah. Now I can see why the model predicts this thing. Like, this is what I was expecting. This is useful. Thank you so much. I can't wait to get my team using this thing. Right. That's the kind of feedback you're looking for. It was not a surprise. They should be very familiar with what's been going on and, and that's what you're going for more. So get stuff out early. Don't worry about it being ugly or wrong. Being wrong isn't, isn't the big problem. The, the lack of learning is, is the problem, right? When we're, not, when we're not learning along the ways because we're not trying to validate that the work we're doing matters to the people who are going to use it, that's the bigger risk. That's the bigger risk. I see. Thanks for emphasizing <clears throat> that insights and, and sort of the, the, the type of values that um, you know someone on, on, the, on the data science can add into into the team being perhaps in comparison to uh, to their counterparts in, in various other functional roles. Mm -hmm. um, so, in addition to you know consulting and writings, you also uh, host a podcast. You know, we, we talked earlier in uh, you know when I introduced you, called experiencing data. So you um, you uncover sort of the strategy and activities uh, by conversation with uh, products, data science, and analytics leaders that they are using to sort of deliver valuable experience around data. So maybe this is sort of a 
kind of kind of some of the stuff you already mentioned, but um, you know, from this type of conversation with different type, of, you know, these leaders, uh, what, what are some of the common themes, you know, that differentiate uh, successful data products uh, from unsuccessful ones? Yeah, I, I think we've, and this could be a as as, as data scientists would know, it could be a selection bias based on who I'm, you know, who I invite on the show and this kind of thing, but. In general, I, I'm, you know, my show. I am a designer, but I, I don't typically have designers on my show. It's it's mostly leaders in uh, data science, business, product management, and analytics are coming on my show. I have people in the innovation space as well, and I think the if there is one thing there, I think it's that most of them have validated to me that these other skills, creative problem solving. Not, they don't necessarily use the word design because I think design tends to be a very visual. We tend to think of data viz when we talk about design and kind of the analytics and data science space and, and visuals is part of it, right? That That's one altitude, one way to think about it. But this concept of being human-centered and really focusing on the customer as kind of the make it or break it point of these solutions that we're building, that ability to go and have the right conversations and to learn how to figure out through empathy and good questioning and good research and participatory design with these stakeholders to figure out what is their actual problem and and making sure that that's really well understood before we fall in love with the solutions that we're building. I think that's probably like a general takeaway from from these episodes is that they all agree that this is an ongoing uh, challenge and it's it's something that's very important and you know as we move into the AI space the word trust comes up quite a bit and so how do we get people to trust these types of solutions my answer to that is that well it's a lot easier to trust it if the people that you're building the thing for were involved in the process of making the solution that they're going to use it's not dropped on them from 10,000 feet they have no idea who James is and you're telling them that like, I have the next best thing for you that's gonna change your world. And they're like, no, it's not. I, there's no way I'm handing over my job to this. Like I'm, my ass is on the line. If I, if I, no way am I gonna, what the heck is this thing, right? That trust issue becomes a, a real issue. So, and that trust, that has nothing to do with the quality of the statistics work or which model you picked or the training data or what the, you know, the false positive count was or what, like, you know what I mean? It, that that's not technical stuff. That's a that's a different set of skills. It's a different set of needs. But we need those things in order to to have more success deploying these solutions into production, where they're actually producing value. They're actually getting used. It's a, it's a different set of skills. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And yeah, and talk, talking about upskilling, you know, for analytical people, I believe that at the moment you are piloting a new seminar called Designing Human Centered Data Science Solution for data scientists, technical product manager, uh, and analytical practitioners. So, um, you know, can, can you unveil the program for those who are interested? It's funny. I, so I actually, I just retitled it. It's, it's, now it's called Designing Human-Centered Data Products. And so why? I'm practicing what I preach, right? I'm still having conversations with potential students uh, and people that take my seminar and courses to make it better. It's a new, it's relatively new. So, so I'll, I'll give you an idea and then I'll t- talk to you a little bit about some of the, the dog fooding that I'm doing, right? So there are two offerings I have. On the lower end is a self-guided course for people that don't, they don't need an instructor and they don't necessarily care about having a cohort of other students to work with. 
you can just go and purchase this course and it includes all of the modules, which are uh, their video modules. They're, the videos are about five to 15 minutes each. And then there's the written supplement that goes in and teaches you, how do you do this stuff? How do you do human-centered design? How do you start getting more engagement, more satisfaction from customers, higher levels of engagement, all this kind of, you know, more praise from your boss because they're thinking like, wow, this is exactly what, what the business sponsor wanted you know, how do we, how do we do this on a regular basis? So, uh, so the course self-guided, um, you can just download it and you'll, you'll, you can actually download the first module completely free on my site. Uh, and then the seminar is the same curriculum as the course. The only difference is it runs twice a year. Um, I teach it. And so there is live, uh, we have, uh, live sessions on Slack together on video. And so I release, I kind of drip the modules out. So like in the first week, I, I think I release two modules each week. And then we have a live Q&A session to ask about the previous week's modules. Uh, and then on Fridays, we talk about what did you learn this week when you tried to go out and apply the learning in your, in your work. Uh, and so my course is not, it's not about getting a certificate or a grade or any of that. The course is focused on going and applying the skills in the real world, in your current job, in the work that you're doing today. This is partly how you learn design is by starting to jump in and doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's really what I want to get people doing is actually going out and applying this stuff. And then on the back end of the seminar, I actually just include a couple extra weeks of time in the Slack room uh, to ask questions because I realize, you know, there's a lot of material to get through and sometimes things lag, right? You might like, I want to do a usability study of my, you know, my data viz, but it's, it's going to take me a week to set it up. So we kind of add some extra time there at the end. So people that are still trying to use this, the, the learning in the course uh, can actually get some feedback from me along the way. So uh, the next one's actually going to probably run in the, in the next month or two. We're actually uh, kind of figuring out the dates together with some of my subscribers. Mm -hmm. um, so probably July, August, September, somewhere in there for the seminar. So, and those are easily findable on, on designingforanalytics.com. Yeah, great, great. And uh, I'll be sure to include the link to the show notes. So okay. anyone interested can, can, can you know, take a look and, um, you know, sign up for that if, uh, you know, they, they're interested in participating um, sure. in, in your program. Mm -hmm. And, um, okay, so Brian, at this part of our conversation, I want to write down with the closing segment in which I'm going to ask you, you know, three rapid fire questions and you can just, you know, give quick answers to the listeners, okay? Sure. Um, so uh, question number one is that, uh, can you name three people in the design universe whose work you re really admire? There's Chris Dew, D-O, his last name. Probably not so relevant to your listeners, but he's doing a lot of great work to, to help designers and creative people uh, learn how to productize and, and think about their work as a business instead of, not, it's, so his focus is not on training on graphic design, but rather the upskilling uh, designers. So I think he's just doing some great work for the field of design. I heard a great podcast with Scott Birkin recently. He just wrote a book called How Design Makes the World. My friend Johan Sonen uh, runs a studio called Involution Studios. I used to work for him at MITRE uh, Corporation. I learned a ton uh, from him. He was probably my biggest mentor uh, earlier on in my uh, career, and he's super devoted to uh, the world of healthcare and, and bringing design into the world of uh, healthcare tech. And then just a shout out to uh, Amanda Cox at the New York Times. I think the Times does a great job with their their data journalism. I think they just do great work over there. So I, I don't know her, but um, those are some some names. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm also a big fan of the database team from, from New York Times. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, question number two, can you name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better design mindset? Yeah, so, you know, thinking on the earlier, I'll, I'll give me, I'm going to give you two because I think it depends on where you are in your career. I think if you're looking for something kind of tactical, I, I really like this book called Good Charts by Scott Baranato. He talks about sketching uh, a lot. I'm a huge fan of working in low fidelity to learn quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. And I like that he talked a lot about using low fidelity work when you're doing data visualization type of stuff. So check his thing out. On the higher end for more executives and, and leadership kind of area, I think Change by Design, uh, the book by Tim Brown of IDEO, I think that's a really good read for people understanding like what is what I call capital D design when we think about really bringing design into an entire company as a, as a way of doing problem solving and creating. Uh, I think that's a, a, a great book. And then I'm actually reading two books. I'm reading Infonomics by Doug Laney, which is about kind of how do you create monetizable data products? Like how do you find ways to productize data? Uh, whether you combine it with other people's data, you make it into your own product, you sell it, you do you know whatever it may be. Uh, I'm, I'm just kind of getting into that. Uh, and I'm also getting into uh, Kareem Lakhani over at Harvard Business School uh, wrote Competing in the Age of AI. So I'm, I'm in the middle of that one as well. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Change by Design, definitely a great book. I read that one before uh, you oh, okay. in my class on, on design thinking. So oh, great. Yeah, that was really, really um, helpful just to have that, uh, that mindset mm-hmm. uh, to, to apply that for business outcomes. Right? Mm-hmm. The last question is that imagine that you could send out a tweet to uh, all the aspiring analytics practitioners on Twitter. Uh, what could you tweet about? Sure. I would say focus on your work on outcomes over outputs. Awesome. That, that's <laughs> it really comes down to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant, Brian. I uh, appreciate, you know, you build my show and, uh, you know, kind of sharing your, your two career, your early uh, work on the field of UX design, uh, advice for people who want to become a consultant, um, you know, your various project work with, with your different clients, a lot mm-hmm. of insightful ideology in terms of uh, human-centered design and the CD framework as well as some of the knowledge uh, that you get from, from doing your podcast. And I'll be sure to uh, include it, uh, all the links in the show notes so people who are interested in, in kind of like, you know, acquiring this sort of uh, creative thinking skill set, this empathy, right, knowledge mm-hmm. in, into uh, their already uh, data science portfolio. And, and I totally agree with you, you know, uh, taking that ownership of understanding your users and focus on outcomes of output. Is is only something that are going to become much more important in the near future when when you know machine learning and AI become much much more prevalent in majority of our current software interface at least. Yep. Yes. Well, thank you again for having me on the show. And people are interested. I do have a, a free what I, it's called an insights mailing list, and I I just write uh, free like little strategy tips every week, uh, usually on Tuesdays. So if you just go to designingforanalytics.com/list. Uh, you can pop your email in there and, and I'll put you on my list and, and send you updates about the podcast as well. So, um, so yeah, so thank you so much for having me on the show. It's it great to share some of these ideas and I, I hope they were helpful. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast 
and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.